Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. Recently, while out on a run, I went too near some stinging nettles and ouch, I got stung. Luckily, however, I immediately knew what to do. I found a nearby dot leaf and rubbed the affected area. The pain was soon over and my run was saved. Now, I feel like I've always known that cure and I'm sure it's something that most of you would have been told as a child as well. It's a very old piece of knowledge that has lasted over many generations. Just one of many nuggets of wisdom about plants which has survived, along with things like carrots being good for your eyes and mint aiding digestion, through story, song and being learned at the knee of a family elder. It comes from a time when it was vital to have an understanding of the botanical world around you, of those plants which were nice and those which were not so nice. My guest for this episode is Amanda Edmiston. Amanda is a professional storyteller with a background and ancestry steeped in knowledge of herbal medicine. Her stories involve a wide range of characters from myth and legend and their encounters with and uses of herbs, flowers, trees, weeds and a whole lot more. Plants and herbs have always been an important part of her life and it was fascinating to talk to her about their folklore and the wisdom contained therein. Not just about what they can be used for, but also how to treat them with respect and work with them to a mutual advantage. In a time when modern society faces some of its greatest ever ecological challenges, these stories are more relevant than ever and offer a chance to connect with nature on a whole new level. In the interview, we also discuss the use of certain plants in sympathetic magic, as well as the growing popularity of permaculture and how that connects with the stories that Amanda tells. It was excellent stuff all round. Enjoy. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me on. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. So uh, first question to um, pretty much all I guess I have is just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into telling stories about herbs and, and plants like you do well um I uh, it was it was an interesting journey <laughs> <laughs> I um had you know tried other things as work before I changed changed my mind several times about what I wanted to be when I grew up to um to the point that I'd already grown up and uh, I'd still not decided you know I think that's <laughs> That's quite a common thing for a lot of people. Um, and I'd I'd kind of, I, I'd, I'd started off, uh, really, I, I'd done, you know, my hires and things many, many years ago. I'd, my, or my A-levels, I'd done theatre arts, I'd done art, I'd done English literature. I, I was heading in that direction. I found drama college incredibly intimidating and scary. I'm not entirely sure I wanted to be an actress. I kind of did, but I, I certainly in my late teens and early 20s, I don't think I had the drive and the self-confidence mm -hmm. um, to, to take that route. Um, my parents were both um, artists and my my maternal grandmother's family had a, had, had a huge influence on me and my mum. My, my grandmother um, had an amazing garden and uh, her family, her brothers and sisters and her, her were all in 
a lot of them had plant type connections, you know, so one brother's a market gardener and another one, you know, her father, my great grandfather was, um, was a, had a farm. And so a lot of my childhood had a strong influence. My mum told me lovely stories about nobody knowing where she was and her being down in the cherry orchard on my great grandfather's farm, um, eating all the cherries. She'd been sent down there to stop the birds eating all the fruit and, <laughs> and then had eaten more than the birds. Um, so um, I, I had this sort of arts background, but came from a very, you know, family background. My grandfather was a sculptor. My granny was this incredible gardener and cook, uh, of, you know, cooked amazing food, not cook, but she cooked incredible food and got me baking from a young age, as did my mum. And then my dad was a toy maker at the time for a long time. And then and my mum made and designed incredible clothes. But we also always had a garden and our family days out were always off into woods and wild places. And my granny and my mum would both throw in facts and sort of uh, handed down knowledge, little snippets of folklore everywhere we went. My mum subsequently became a storyteller. Um, I was probably in my late 20s by that point. Um, uh, and I'd done drama and then not done, not, you know, not gone into uh, uh, down the drama college path, gone into catering got absorbed by catering as as so many people do um and you know you work in restaurants and you constantly meet people who were filling in time to become a writer and you know I ended up running restaurants and still imagining I was going to be something else when I grew up but in a way it was quite useful because I had I learned a lot about food and food ultimately connects in with that whole uh plant law and um looking at our history and we tell stories about food food connects us to our traditions and our festivals and and community so in a way I don't think that was lost time I I then decided right it's a long story do excuse me (laughs) Um, it's fine I like it (laughs) (laughs) that I would I would go into law now I'd won a scholarship way back in my uh, I was about 19 or 20 to go and study Native American art and culture at the University of Santa Fe and I spent a summer out there uh, and had been really fascinated by um, land rights and the the sort of struggle people were having to um, maintain their their culture basically and but their huge respect for the environment and the land that was an integral part of of life you know I mean one that I think you know is growing is is having a resurgence but that I think in a little in a tiny way I could relate to having looked at Scottish history um and uh things like the Highland Clearances and so I I kind of all made sense I was I started so that sort of there was this other side path along with the plants and the food and everything where I was interested in in people's human rights and their connection to the land and um, how that um, built communities and tied in with belief systems and law and stories, really. Um, So I went off and did law, thinking that I would go and 
uh, work with human human rights and um, that sort of thing. Unfortunately, I mean, I, I did do my law degree. Um, I had a massive life upheaval um, in the very last bit. I, I did all my exams, sat all the way through it, didn't hand in my dissertation. <laughs> so because I, I genuinely had a bit of a, um, a crisis and at the same time running, uh, at the same time as that, I became very aware that I had a, a, a massively... Um, Mm, idealistic view, uh, for want of a better way of describing it, of what I could do with law. I had thought mm. I would valiantly surge in, you know, like some kind of superhero and uh, save things I believed in and meet other people that believed in them. And I had a moment where I should have spotted it really early on, but I, I, I've got, I'm quite determined. <laughs> to the fact it's almost a fault uh but I, I yeah single-minded uh not mm, single-minded a, a bit direct you know I I do tend to get onto a path and decide and keep going with things stubborn that's the word I'm looking for um, but, <laughs> um uh, I I had a moment really early on and and someone said you know what newspaper do you read and I read um a certain a certain um um uh, uh, newspaper at the time going back 20 odd years now that um you know with a left-wing bias shall we say but you know broadsheet newspaper long before everyone read papers on the internet and I was <laughs> the only one out of 150 odd law students that read a broadsheet newspaper with a left-wing bias that had the law reports in it and um, you know I was uh surrounded by um people who from, from from my political point of view, we're reading quite uh, more right-wing and mainstream newspapers, and many of them didn't have law reports in them, and I was just left going, what's up with these people? And then, and then I got a lot of criticism over the course from fellow students about how people saying, you won't make any money doing that. And I realised slowly over the four years I was studying law, five years I was studying law, that every, most people... Um, were doing it so that they could maximise their earning potential. Their drive to do this was to earn money. Uh, when I showed an interest in criminal law, people were like, why would you want to work with those people? And I was left going, because I have this sort of feeling that, that people all deserve um, a right. And I, I thought that most people probably ended up on the wrong path because of circumstances, not because of some inherent evil. Do you know? Um, I liked, and, right. I, and I got more and more sort of dis, dis, oh, just upset with it all. Yeah, I, I, and so went back into working in catering, um, had some, you know, years of, of trying to look at myself and decide what I wanted to do, and then eventually spotted a course in, a degree course in herbal medicine up in Scotland. Moved back up to Scotland from Aberdeen originally, but moved up to Glasgow to study herbal medicine, um, having had this base of knowledge way back from childhood where art and folklore and plants and food all converged anyway, um, I now had this focus and I was lucky enough to go to the Scottish School of Herbal Medicine in Glasgow for a couple of years, um, a, um, a, a school who looked at herbal medicine um, from a Gertian point of view 
taking in a lot of energetics and so not purely a science-based course a course that looked uh, that went out worked with the plants outside um, engaged with um, art and folklore um, about plants as well as a, as a little peep into how medical herbalists use them now bear with me yeah, ask a story teller for a story <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and you get one. Um, but I um, then ha- got became pregnant with my eldest daughter, and um, I was working to pay for my my degree, um, and um, that that wasn't working out. And somewhere um, heading into the my third year, I think I would have been at herb school. I realised that I wanted to focus on my uh, daughter. I was, you know, coming up to the end of my pregnancy and, um, and, and took, you know, took leave, went off um, and spent a couple of years focusing on being a mum. I was a single parent and um, I then started to look for ways that I could earn a living that made it easy for me and my daughter and something I could take her with me. Um, but still working with plants and not falling back into one of those jobs that we use to um, fill in time, you know, that just pays bills because that was eating away at me. Um, it, it genuinely, I felt myself, I was about to say, it is, it's a, a Sunday morning, so it's not the, here, so it's not the time to say it was eating <laughs> into my soul because it sounds dramatic, but it genuinely felt like, um, all those jobs to pay the bills were destroying me. I was incredibly miserable for a long time, stuck in catering jobs and, you know, working to pay a bill. Um, and so when I had my daughter, I thought, right, you know, I can't afford to be lost in a in a well of depression anymore. And, you know, uh, and then trying to escape. And, and what am I going to do? So it, it took a lot of part of soul searching and a, and a bit of time and my mum bless her who you know has been a storyteller now for about 30 years um is an incredible storyteller saying to me you've always been a storyteller um you've always told stories um I remember getting into huge amounts of trouble when I was six for making up a massive adventure and telling everyone it was the truth <laughs> Uh, and then being called out but um I you know yeah stories are massively important so I I took I realized also reflecting on my herbal medicine my my formal studies that it was the folklore and the community traditions the stories and legends and myths that um sort of shadow Form at the start of plant stories, they're they're almost like um a glimpse into um a, an ancient way of understanding uh, that I really loved. I right. started to volunteer and I asked got asked to tell stories in a beautiful garden in Glasgow, and um, people loved it. The garden found funding to pay me to do it professionally. That was I got um, a couple of in Scotland. There's a there is a kind of a, a way with the storytelling centre where people are either mentored or, and then they're coming, uh, 
more experienced storytellers come out and see what they do and check in that they're you know meeting requirements and a, and a standard where they can work professionally um I kind of uh, they looked at my cases though I had been mentored by my mum for a long time which I had maybe not always realizing that that's what was happening but um I certainly had um I got put onto the directory uh and then I got offered um a a gig pairing a this the hidden garden in Glasgow um with Chelsea Physic Garden so I did some work for in Glasgow I then went down and did a sort of flip side of that uh piece that those stories down in Chelsea Physic Garden for their spice festival with one year during mm. Notting Hill Carnival and um that was gorgeous it was a really really lovely uh weekend and I came away going oh now I feel like I've come home I actually feel like I know exactly <laughs> what I want to do I feel confident and totally um sure that I am in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. Plants and the stories behind them is what I love. I could talk to people about it forever um, and uh, people seem to enjoy it, you know, and, and this whole, there's a whole, there becomes a kind of magical sense that something wonderful is happening and, and it makes me feel alive and it just brings so much joy to me. And, you know other people's feedback is that they love it too and so I you know I then found myself that the the work kind of started to come in and I developed more and more uh, connections met more people and and found myself being a horrible storyteller right there we go we're bang up to date thank you for bearing with me <laughs> oh no not at all that was a that's a fantastic first answer uh... yeah so um, one, just going back to talking about your herbal medicine course, you mentioned it had a, a Gertian yeah. approach and, and dealt with energetics. Just just for myself and the listeners, can you just go into a bit more detail about those two things? Gosh, maybe. Um, yeah, <sighs> probably not, actually. Okay. Uh, that's one of those where I go, go Google it. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, well, how, herbs... Uh, and their energetic principles a lot I mean a lot of it in western in right there are other traditions other than western herbalism that um work with energetics in um in a way that's sort of uh, more commonplace in modern western society and strangely uh Ayurvedic tradition from um India and Chinese traditional Chinese medicine both work with energetics. So it's more than just um, the physical um, physical action in the body and then something that acts in, you know, to remedy that physical action. So it's energetics take on board. Um, how, how the, mm, well, no, I can't explain it. <laughs> <laughs> You don't need it to catch me after another cup of coffee. But, I mean, your your mood comes into it, um, your thought processes, how your body um, behaves and its attitude. Uh, you, you know, it's almost like tapping into that, that part of us that when we meet someone, 
we pick up on their melancholia or we pick up on their right. them being an angry person. Do you know what I mean? So you, yeah. you meet someone and you think there's this red faced person and they've got a tense jaw and they maybe have um, an angry, irritable skin condition and their brows are knitting. And although they're saying to you, uh, I'm, I'm allergic to something <coughs> or this allergy, you're, the way you would treat it or the way you would respond to the skin condition is not simply to give them an antihistamine, but also to take on board that this person is um, presenting with uh, emotional type, um, that they're a hot person, that they're inflammatory, you know, that they have um, an angry disposition. So that may then choose you, uh, cause you to choose herbs that would more suit this hot, fiery, intense disposition, but that may also alleviate the allergy and calm the skin, but by treating it as um as their energetics really um and uh yeah there are there are western traditions that look at this as well i mean Culpepper's cited quite a lot, you know, and he ties in brilliantly with um when you're storytelling stories from a from a Western tradition, um, because, you know, he goes in for dandelions being, you know, are, are for work with people with liver disorders. And one of the reasons that he goes into this is because they're yellow and uh, the human body, if it's suffering from a, a liver condition, often will indicate yellow, you know, so we get, we associate yellowing skin and eyes with hepatitis. Right. Um, I'm being really general and I'm not going into this from a medical point of view because as I say I am now I'm not a practicing herbalist I have a good knowledge of what plants do I would not make recommendations what I say to people is you could try this and this is something that's in common use with the really safe everyday herbs that even a couple of generations ago people would have used without thinking so you know mint for digestive disorders especially hot mm. fiery ones speaking of energetics because they're cooling mm. um uh or you know nettles but will build up the body for minerals but nettle soup is you know was a traditional food stuff um quite commonplace until relatively recently um they're really nourishing so i i don't when I'm working, go into the deeper medical use of plants because I'm not a registered practicing medical herbalist. And, and I will say to people, if you want to treat the more complex issues, this is where you find people. If you want to email me directly, I can send you, you know, the, the, the National Institute of Medical Herbalists list for the UK, or I can put you in touch with people in the US or wherever you are where you will find someone who is qualified and practicing and does this on a day-to-day -day basis and is insured to do so um, and can work with doctors and other medical practitioners. I, but, you know, I, it doesn't stop me <laughs> adding in because the stories I tell um, or usually my, my particular niche, if you like, are stories that reveal the, uh, the healing uses. So there are loads, you know, we have amazing stories about plants in in uh, the UK and in every country of the world, um, but they don't 
all reveal what the plants are for. They sometimes just fit in as part of the story. Sometimes they have a different purpose, but a lot of story. But, but we also have stories where they are telling you about what the plant does, and usually from a from a time where you know mass literacy um, was not widespread. Literacy wasn't widespread, and um, information was passed on through stories. So uh, for me, the stories reveal some of the energetics of the plant because you know you can have angry people in stories that meet with a plant. It's right, quite yeah. subtle, it, but uh, you know when you get it, when, the more you read about it, the more you understand it, the, the more sense it makes. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I see. And um, so does that tie into something like sympathetic magic? Because I know that. Now, bladderwort is named that because it has little bags that it uses to di- mm-hmm. digest animals that look like bladders, and you can make a you can make a tea from that, which is helpful for urinary infections. And mm-hmm. you know, it's been found that kidney beans can help maintain kidney function. Yeah, walnuts look like little brains, and they can help with brain function. You know, um, the cross section of a carrot looks a bit like an eye, and that's you know classically. Carrots are good for our good eyesight. You've been been doing your homework. Well, I thought I I should. Um, So so, um, with these kind of things, does that tie into the the stories that you find yourself telling when you're researching plant folklore? Absolutely. You know, you've you've absolutely uh, nailed it. Yeah, that's actually the kind of thing. And I mean, I work... I work across, uh, um, you know, a variety of different places. So I do a lot of work with museums and botanic gardens, um, universities uh, and stuff for adults. But I also work um, with uh, across education settings, but, uh, you know, upper primary um, children, I I work with quite a lot. Excuse me. (coughs) And... um, one of the one of the things I say to them is is pretty much what you've just covered with sympathetic magic that that this is um, sympathetic magic for for many people. I I think what it is is that it's science, but with a different language to explain it. Mm. You know, so children um, in many ways. In many ways, it's yeah, it's science, but with a different language. I mean, a while ago, I did a. I wrote a session for Edinburgh International Science Festival called Which Came First, The Science of the Story. Because, you know, you'll meet grown-ups and they will dismiss um, uh, dismiss sympathetic magic, dismiss science. And I just sort of say, actually, hang on a minute. This is, this is just a different way of telling people something. We, we now, you know, will write an enormous research paper uh, isolating um, the components of a plant and uh, analyze each and every single bit of data, um, test it hundreds of times, um, see how each element works in isolation. But quite often, the result of, of all that research is um, something that would have been in a different time um, described in terms of, you know, carrots helping your eyes or. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, the Valerian dreams bit that um, we talked about before the recording, mm. and talked about Valerian um, attracting rats and and cats, and it being wonderfully useful for that. And it ties in with the Pied Piper of Hamelin. You know, many people will try and tell you that he probably had 
valerian in his shoes or in a bag you know in a maybe a little you know a little magical bag inside of him getting all the creatures to follow him um maybe that's how he got the children to go to sleep when he gets them into the mountain hmm. and that just sounds like a fairy story to many people's ears but you tell that to a group of of 10 and 11 year olds in a primary school they can make that leap that this is science in a different language no problem at all you know you you know i usually start off saying to them there was a there was a rhyme that got taught along with nursery rhymes for a long time and and certainly uh, a lot of people i work with know it or a variant of that goes nettle in dock out dock rubs nettle out we all know that a dock leaf will cancel out a nettle sting mm. you don't need to read an enormous research paper proving you know about um how it uh alkalizes the acid or anything you know like that but you you could you could <laughs> however all you need to actually know is what is that if one of those nettle things stings you if you pick a dock leaf what a dock leaf looks like you can you can rub it out you know that whether that's magic science or you know a folkloric tradition doesn't really matter the the fact is it works and children will remember that uh, eight word rhyme more than they'd remember the research paper yeah definitely yeah by then i've gone on to telling them um, the story of the wild swans you know which is the hans christian anderson people version a lot of people know but um with the with the swans t- the brothers turned into swans and the girl then weaves them nettle shirts right uh, there's a version of it in you know the half a dozen versions of it from countries around the world nearly everywhere that nettles can be found um uh, but I'll say, you know, and here we are. So this may sound like a fairy story. People are turned into swans and then transformed back. However, there are clues in the story. Uh, nettles were used for fabric. Um, if you were going to be up all night weaving nettle shirts, then fresh nettle seeds may very well give you the strength and energy and resources to, to undertake your task. Nettle soup would help keeping up your iron levels. Uh, if you pick nettles regularly enough, you don't scream when they sting you anymore. You're just not that worried. Um, right. yeah, uh, there, are, there are facts and little hints of sort of real magic hidden in there. Uh, and that's the way with a lot of stories and a lot of plants. I've probably digressed now. No, no, Do not at all. Do me back in. <laughs> No, it's, it's it's all fascinating. I I think earlier on you were talking about these these kind of stories. They're sort of a a lost knowledge that that they're still there, but we we don't really perhaps take as much notice of in mainstream mm-hmm. society anymore. Mm-hmm. Do, do, who do you think were the people that were keepers of this knowledge and and, and telling these stories? I mean, in, relative to the communities, would there be one person who? who had this knowledge and would be like a sort of a wise person? I I think maybe to an extent, I think that's also something we would love to be true. Yeah. And I think that um, my mum has a, fascin- a brilliant saying, which is when children particularly always ask, is that true? When you finish telling them a story, my stock answer is um, there are bits of it that are true and there are bits of it 
of it that aren't and it's up for you to to work out which is which hmm. or I'm sure you all can tell which bit is which my mum my mum's brilliant answer is a story is always true while you're telling it which I think is very beautiful I wish I'd thought of it um, yeah I love that <laughs> yeah uh, and I think to a degree yes there are always going to have been in the same way that there are there are people who will know about um, herbal use, but may not have an, the extent of knowledge um, that that was always the case. So now where you might, I might say to you, go and find a, a, a herbal practitioner who works with plants all the time. And that is their life's work and focus. Whether you go via um, a mainstream register, which I do from the point of view of, being an insured professional, I go down that route when I'm saying that to members of the public. But also, you know, just someone who does this day in, day out and knows exactly what they're doing. If you're going out foraging for mushrooms, go out with someone that picks them all the time and eats them. Don't go out with someone who's read the book, mm. you know. Um, and I'm sure that's always been the case, whether that knowledge was obtained from being handed down and from... Um, going out and working directly with the plants and picking up on um, an underlying feeling and then testing that out yourself. Um, with the storytelling, similarly, people often say, everyone's a storyteller. And um, in private, so now I'm going to say it publicly on the podcast, there are some people that can, um, there are loads of people, everyone can tell a story. There are lots of people that can tell a good story, um, only some of them want to do it and people want to hear tell stories lots all the time, you know. There are there are brilliant old old folk that you meet that will blether to you over a hedge or in a pub eh, for <laughs> hours on end telling you story after story, whether or not you want to pay to go around and listen to them every day. <laughs> She says, thinking of a thinking of a recent taxi driver, um, who is telling me everyone's a storyteller. Uh-huh. Um I say, well, you know, at the same time, you wouldn't pay me to drive you anywhere. And um <laughs> but no. Uh, <laughs> and so I think to an extent there will have always been um one or two people in a community who are more skilled with plants in certain ways, uh, treating people. And there are some people who have probably always spun stories into that. There will have been people who, before uh, TV and radio and Wi-Fi, um, you wanted to go and listen to by way of entertainment. And there are going to have been places where those collide. And that before we had the NHS and doctors, you know, that only happened in the 1940s. So, you know, the NHS, you know, mm. so uh, before that, you know the the culture changed shifted significantly only seventy years you know less than seventy years ago, um, so you know and the, similarly with the storytelling the culture really only shifted seventy eighty years ago uh, or started to shift, and so there will have always been people that were sought out whose skills in these sort of fields were more valued than other people whether or not they were our archetypal you know wise women at the edge of the village. I would love it if they were, but whether you actually ever know you're the wise woman at the end of the village or not, I don't know. Um, hmm. You know, or they, you know, the 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 
the cunning the the cunning man you know with the skill you know the skills that is regularly at his hand or you know um there you go i've got the, i've still got them isolated in in with cats at either end of the village in <laughs> No, or you know, a couple who were really good at this, or you know, whatever, whatever their situation, they were bound to have been people that people sought out and valued for that. Um, and I'm sure that uh, one of the things that's happened is that that is not as valued, um, for a variety of reasons as it once was. So I think yes, there were people, whether they were the colourful characters we've created with stories always. Well, that's another matter. Maybe that's part of the fairy story. Right. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that the idea is a, of a of a wise person is is quite archetypal, isn't it? And it's, it really it's funny, is. It's funny how me asking you that. I guess I've kind of I've summoned that from my imagination rather than sort of um, objective knowledge. It's kind of a romantic idea in my head that this is how this knowledge is imparted. Well, I mean, I, I've been working on a project. I worked on a project last year, the tell, the Tales of the Tarshire, with um, fantastic um, researcher Scott uh, Richardson Reed and I got together and had a meeting because we had uh, similar interests and we were encountering each other online quite a lot. And um, I started a conversation pretty much on Facebook by going, "Who are you? Do I know who you are?" Because you know, uh, I'm doing my work with under the title Botanica Fabula, but my my name was, um, my name's pretty much everywhere all over Botanica Fabula stuff. Scott was working um, very much under the kayak herbarium and, you, you know, there was no sign of who Scott was beyond that. And so I kind of went, right, you're Scottish and you've got herbal connection. I pretty much must know who you are. There's got to be a second or third degree connection. Who are you? We're on the same sort of path. And eventually ended up with a conversation that led to us um, working with a, an old friend of mine, Debbie Armour, who's a, a fantastic traditional musician, recording under the name Bird Ellen, um, uh, and writing using Scott's research, which included uh, transcripts of transcriptions of, of witch trials, um, research into some of the traditional folkloric charms that are used in the Carmina Gadelica and the Mackenzie manuscripts, which we both looked at separately. I worked a lot with Marion, Lawrence Marion McNeil's books uh, and had charms and historical information from there and had also worked in intergenerational storytelling projects of my own, uh, The Kissed in Time, where I'd been around asking people in communities for their memories and plant use and lore, and tying them in with archive material. Um, I Scott then did more research. We worked together. I wrote stories combining these uh, charms, herb use, traditional stories and legends, all woven together. And then Debbie came in and composed new music, and we recorded it all together. But I... <laughs> at the end of this journey and we, and we ended up having um a lovely a, a really really heartwarming lovely kickstarter campaign we, i think we've got three times four times funded but we used the the excess from the from the funding for the album to um have a a two day a two day 
no, a, a day long, it's two days this year, whoops, I'm letting the cat out of the bag too early, a day <laughs> long look at uh, Scottish um, folk magic and community traditions. But all each speaker from the academic world was accompanied by a storyteller and we had um, musicians involved and, and a lovely day-long celebration. Um, we're having another one this year, as I've let slip. Um, slightly longer one this time. But but then we've we've used the the profit from the album to create the Woven Land Network, which is working towards saving environmental um yeah, or keeping an eye on traditional sites, so wells and and the, the state of some of the traditional wells was what we looked at initially and it sort of spread out from there. To try and save places that have community traditions and stories about them that are not big glamorous castles that you know are immediately acknowledged but have sort of more kuthi more local traditions but one of the things that came out of it back to your question i've digressed somewhat do excuse me but was that scott more than me because i'm um, a bit more brash and noisy and um i uh I, I just sort of say to people, yes, I'm a storyteller and I'm a bit of a show off and this is what I do. Um, a lot of people have have wanted Scott, I think, to be the archetype and have, um, you know, he's had, he's had um, you know, people say to me, oh, tell me about what you do. And he's just like, yeah, OK, I'm just, I, I'm a researcher and I'm, I'm really passionate about community and, and traditions and looking after things and, and you know, he's a really sound guy, but I think people want him to be more of, of an archetype than he actually is. Do you know? He's, right. Uh, and and um, I don't know what I probably I I don't know. I haven't had the same sort of attention. Um, I, I think I'm more prone to, as I say, being upfront and um, just saying this is what I do. Be very and um, oh, gosh, what do I do? What do I do that? I don't get that sort of. I don't get asked to be an archetype. I maybe do, and I don't notice. I'm probably on. Right. A, I'm probably on a, <laughs> a high speed track, so that I don't even. I'm not even aware of that. <laughs> but yeah, I think we all do have an archetype, and I think we would love it if people were. Do you know what I mean? It it helps with our pigeonholing of folk. But at the same point, I think it would be. I I love the fairy tale image. If someone wants to give me Baba Yaga's cottage on a chicken foot, surrounded by skulls with loads of hanging up herbs, uh, yeah, go for it. I'm up for that. <laughs> yeah, that sounds. Uh, I, I can I can see that actually. You know, I I mean that as a compliment. I can see you in the sort of Baba Yaga cottage. Totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I help the help the souls of the dead into the afterlife quite cheerfully because they'll have one. They'll eventually they'll be like, I'm worn out. I'm so tired. I'm going away now. She's exhausted me. And, um, <laughs> and happily trundle off to the afterlife. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, I, I, Baba Yaga wasn't always a, a monstrous character. Like you say, she was helpful at times. Yeah, totally. And there's so many stories about her. I'm, you know, I can't I can't claim to be an expert on Baba Yaga, but she is one of my favourite um favorite fairy story which is partially because she is so multi-dimensional hmm. so and um, one thing i was going to ask is that at, at the moment there seems to be a move towards more people embracing uh, permaculture and uh-huh. and growing plants together and 
I wouldn't say so much returning to returning to an old way of of coexisting with nature, but perhaps looking back at techniques that uh, past societies used to grow food and together. Do you think mm-hmm. from the folklore that you studied and the stories that you tell there there is there are stories in there that kind of indicate how people can work with with nature and with the land to sort of yeah. grow food sustainably and not take too much out of the landscape? I think that's really, really important. I think the two are um, a, a vital, um, they have a vital connection. Um worked on a project. Um, I don't know, it's been... A, not it, we kind of brought it to a uh, finish last year but it was mainly 2017 and did a lot of the groundwork for it uh but with um a community gardening uh charity called grow mm. 73 and it's about the i've done a few community gardening projects but this one was exceptional because um i and and you know partially because it came further along my career path and uh, I worked with two incredibly inspiring women who had started um, this this community gardening organisation in a former mining town in the central belt of Scotland, um, Rutherglen. And Rutherglen's got an incredible sense of community, but it, it's also got those edges of um, community, industrial communities where, and this is a this is common uh, across the UK and probably further afield as well, where people have come in, they've eradicated a lot of the uh, culture that's come before them. And and by culture, I'm I'm also including um, industrial steps, um, places people work, the houses. um, And then a new generation have come in, um, they've gone, right, this doesn't work. What you did before, these castles are falling down. They're not making any money. Um, it's going to cost us too much to repair them. Let's knock them down. Let's use this for a uh, chemical works or paper works or rope works, um, shipbuilding. Um, that has then literally run out of steam. Uh, something new has come along. It's been flattened. The remnants, the waste from that, has often been buried in the ground. The next big thing has come along. That's been buried in the ground. Then it's been flattened. You know, the land has been given to a care home or to a supermarket chain. Um, And then the houses are cleared because, you know, people have decided they're slums, new houses are built, families are split up. And every time these actions take place, the stories are lost. There's less ground available, but the moment that that old castle is knocked down, that would have had gardens and farmland attached, the stories as well as the people are shifted. I mean, it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of our conversation about uh, diasporas and um, land rights. But when people are moved off the land, or you know whether that's uh, willfully moving them off the ground, the land, or whether the work has run out and then new people are brought in with different skill sets. So the mining community in Scotland moved around quite a lot. Um, and a lot of the mining villages, there are Cornish names where Cornish miners came up. 
there are connections with names from different mining communities in Scotland will crop up in in different parts of the country. Um, so people are shifted, and every time people are shifted, hmm. the chains are broken where the stories aren't told, and those stories are often about, as I say, go back and go back to the stories about plants and places in the land. So the story might not be told anymore about how that hill once had a griffin inside it that, you know, uh, hoarded gold um, or a dragon, a fire-breathing dragon. And so that knowledge that that somewhere deep in all of us, I think, that that mountain was once a volcano, that fire-breathing dragon story is a dormant volcano, or the uh, griffin that hoards gold is actually grown up from uh, the Roman hordes that were found or the Roman <laughs> the story I'm thinking of at this moment um there's a there were gold coins found and that's actually because it was a, a marching path um and the hills have this legend about a griffin that hoarded gold in them and in fact the the mountains that uh, had riches in them for other reasons as well but um yeah the, so those stories are lost and something of the knowledge of the land and at the same time, the knowledge of the plants is lost. As we then reuse the land and, and the current passion for community gardening projects and, you know, aspects of permaculture um, are, you know, having a, a moment of flourishing at the moment, um, then those stories are a part of that. So this, this project I worked on, one of the things that I centred on and I focused on when I was gathering stories from old people in care homes and then sharing them with uh, younger children um, primary school older primary school children um, mainly and community groups so we had uh, some groups of um, a group of men that all got together and, and made things they all made bird boxes they made amazing uh, garden based stuff but they all chat while they're working and then people come together and plant was that the stories and the planting actually were vital to each other. When we're gardening, when we're in community green spaces, we create stories that um, for ourselves. So whether that's those family stories, you know, about your granny making a den with the sheets and the washing line on a community drying lawn in a park, mm. or whether it's um, the story like my mum up the cherry tree. Um, and in there is vital information. I, I think the two link in. With the, the Ruther Glen project, um, I was lucky enough that these two amazing women, Lynn and Eugenie, were, went away and um, got an, a fantastic illustrator to draw up a beautiful map of the park we worked in that's got... Um, a bit of new woodland created in it and has got community growing happening in it as well. And the stories were put into the map. The children recorded some of those stories so you can hear the recordings um, and then had a conversation. We, we worked with um, a fantastic sculptor, Rob Mulholland, who created amazing sculptures that went into the park that reflected the stories, literally, they're made of shiny metal, but they also told the stories. So the stories became sculpture um, with input from the children and the people in the care home. Um, the land had actually been a site that had had chemical waste buried on it. And then the 
landowner had gifted it to back to the people as a public park. Now, buried under that park somewhere, uh, you know, are various toxic metals, and um, they can't be they can't be removed without huge expense. But in a way, we were thinking about plants that would then uh, reintegrate the chemicals in a in a kinder way back into into the the environment. So sunflower off the top of my head, you know, things like sunflowers and willow will pretty much start over a very long time, um, but will use certain heavy metals um, and sunflowers, they become seeds and, you know, the willow, we could use the bark. And so the stories reflected the plant use that was part of the soil healing. It's quite, it's all, there are threads, do you know, it's like, it's like mycelium. There are, <laughs> it's like a network yeah. of roots going down there. But for me, um, those sort of, those sort of things make the stories that I like to use and tell and the way I work with people, um, that that's a really vital part of it. Do you know, it's, it's, it's just really, really important, those tiny um, threads of roots that that drift through all of yeah. it that tie in with the the land use the planting the growing what people have done as communities keeping hold of those threads of stories retelling them people knowing the stories knowing their land understanding more about each other and um we can't care for each other for me we can't care for each other without caring for um the other living species we share the planet with you know, um, we don't need to be ridiculous about that, but we need to be aware and we need to be caring about it. So, yeah, it all ties in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I think, I think the, the permaculture and the community gardening kind of growth is, is fantastic at the moment. It's really exciting and it brings people together. And if people come together, they share stories. And, you know, you can't go wrong with any of that food and stories at the same time. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's another uh, brilliant answer. What you were describing just then, the, the planting of birch trees and sunflowers, it sounds like you're, you're planting these things to sort of banish a, a dangerous entity that lives in, the, lives in the soil. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, you know, I think um, there are there are loads of stories about, you know, the protective power of trees even historical stories so you know William Wallace hiding in an oak um and uh but or or you know rings of rings of trees um or fairy rings of of mushrooms being and these protective binding and rowan trees being protective outside a house there is that there is that connection in that actually they are forming mm. a type of protection it's just that we have a very fairy story um view of what that is and we could in the same way the herbal medicine um connection does tell that in a different form we could write a scientific research paper about why why rowan is actually protective of you know straight away you know it's full of vitamin c um the berries are massively high in in vitamin c and that that might protect you from um viruses yes um or reduce the strength that's you know really really basic level but you could do a massive analysis of that in terms of science at the end of the day um but what we do already have is that rowan is a protective 
tree, if you put a, a bit of it into your cradle, it will protect your child from being stolen by the fairies. Good to have. The, I, I kind of like the fairy story bit. <laughs> yeah. you know, I think I think you lose a half an audience if you turn it into dry science. Yeah, definitely. Um, if you tell it in terms of, you know, fairy stories and sympathetic magic and things like that, it retains its enchantment um, for, for, for a wider audience. Absolutely. And what you were saying before, I think, the, the the work you're doing with those people that are running a community garden is, is really important because it's it's reconnecting people with 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 nature and and, the, and the, the the living world around them because earlier on in your conversation you were talking a bit about the highland clearances and and something similar happened a little later on the the enclosure act in britain basically took away a lot of common land from people well, yeah, the Enclosures Act was earlier, I think, wasn't it? Um, oh, was it? Oh, uh, sorry. Yeah, I, I do both sides of the border. I was, <laughs> I swear, a lot, a lot of my, a lot of my, um, a lot of, a lot of my primary school years in Yorkshire, and I'm quit. I, I'm gonna, I would have to check. I pray. I think the clearances are later than the, than the Enclosures Act. But yeah, totally. And the Enclosures Act, loads of stuff gets lost as well. In the same way, there is, um, you know, Britain has always shifted. And I don't think that yeah. shifting is a bad thing um, in itself, but sometimes clearing people is not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose that they they did that to feed the people that were living in the cities with the industrial revolution. But what it did was it it meant that there wasn't that tradition of passing down knowledge from generation to generation in the yeah. in the landscape, and so people lost that connection yeah. with with the with the living world around them. Yeah. And I and I think there's um you know I I know I tell a I did a story mending thing ages ago where I, I take bits of folklore and I, I sort of fill out the whole story because the whole story isn't there, but um the mermaid of the Clyde one I I wrote years ago that that I still tell, but it's very much about that about you know but people a very short sighted thing where they build up one thing and deplete mm. another, um. Mm. And you know you lose you lose something. And I mean, we're working um, with older people uh, on a number of projects. One of the stories that kept cropping up was that people said, "Oh, the starvation in lots of rural areas across Britain." Actually, we we immediately think of Ireland, and in Scotland, you know, we're aware there were there were um, times of near famine in rural communities as well and I'm actually the were in England is at similar times and in the run-up especially to the first world war um uh there were people having to move to cities because they were literally starving to death um and that's where the food was um, but it yeah and again stories are lost it is that whole diaspora and people and clearances of, of whatever type and in a way what I was saying about the the industrial uh, the community gardening project in a former industrial town has the same has the same aspect yeah. do you know what I mean it's just a it's, a it's a more subtle modern clearance but it's still shifting people and and um and not always done with the greatest care and um yeah the, you know we we can I for me I get onto politics but we could I, I think we could look after people a bit more <laughs> I, I totally agree I mean it, it seems to be what what something like a community garden will do is it will help people have more of a connection with 
the food that they eat and the plants that they grow and feel like perhaps that they have slightly more agency in life. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, we need to we need to acknowledge the sort of ghosts of the past, if you like, by way of stories. Mm. That's what stories have always done. They've taken those terrifying things and retold them in the hope that we learn from them. And if you are gardening, you know, it becomes a natural or or working with your hands in some way, you know, like the the um the men's group that, that are building things from wood, they're you know, the conversations start up. Hmm. Um, yeah, and, and they are a really, it's just a really vital sense of community. Um, and if you just, yeah, if, you, if your focus is entirely on making, um, I, I'll say something in a story about um, the iron-rich meadows that, or the, the meadows that brought um, iron-rich greens that benefited the many were replaced by iron-rich shipyards that gave wealth to the few, a iron-rich wealth to the few. You know, it's that whole thing of you can do something that actually benefits um, a much wider group of people or you can do something that's going to bring yourself short-term profit um, and it's about long-term wealth for the many, I think, for me. Do you know what I mean? Let's make mm. everybody and the the green places like you know let's make this a better place for plants as well and we'll probably all benefit from it um, brilliant yeah oh god right <laughs> no, I, I, um, we're getting off into a whole different field there no not at all I, I i think that's a lovely way to end the episode uh, amanda thank you so much for being on the podcast i wanted to do an episode about plant law for for quite a while and you're absolutely the the perfect guest Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's been really lovely talking to you. And um, I hope I've not digressed off the subject too many times. But thank uh, you very much for inviting yeah. me. <laughs> so if people want to find out more about you and the work that you do, how do they best do that? My website is www.botanicafabula.co.uk. Um, Botanica Fabula, B-O-T-A-N-I-C-A, F-A-B-U-L-A, and oh, Amanda Edmiston, Botanica Fabula, and you will find me. Um, uh, yeah, and so there's lots of links and, and other places you can find me on the website. I'm all over social media. <laughs> Excellent. I like social media. It's a good way of chatting to people and telling stories to folk further afield. I'm doing a project at the moment that's entirely, um, that's also going to run online as well as live. And that can be found, you can find me on Facebook and connect in with that if people want to hear more stories told on um, recordings and film. So yeah, they can find me there. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to include that in the show notes. Yeah, it's a hashtag curious herbal. So cool. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, thanks, Amanda. You're very welcome. Thank you. I think you'll agree with me that you could tell immediately from that interview what a talented storyteller Amanda is. It was great to listen to her talk about her life and how she worked her way towards her current career via many other professions. It's clear that the talent and passion had been there in one form or another for quite a while, but it also involved a lot of hard work along the way. It can be difficult to leave that job that you hate, which pays the bills, but often doing that can be the best choice you'll ever make. 
I admire that Amanda uses her storytelling to entertain and educate in schools and communities and pass on some of the folklore and folk wisdom handed down by previous generations. It was also interesting to talk with her about the connections between the folklore of plants and herbs and the practical side of growing them in allotments or in permaculture projects. It's something that could prove vital to know in the future, helping communities to become more sustainable and work in partnership with nature rather than against it. I really wanted to talk with Amanda about plant consciousness, as that's the subject I'm fascinated in, and I think folklore is a great place to start when considering plant life as beings in their own right. But that will have to wait for another episode. I really hope you enjoyed this one. Amanda was somebody I'd wanted to get on the show for a while. Anyway, to contact me at Sphere HQ about this episode, or with any ideas for future subjects, or suggestions for guests, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify and Stitcher. As ever, likes, ratings and reviews are very much appreciated. Thank you for listening. 